City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the third floor. Uh, So when I was a junior in high school, uh, I had an English teacher who I was uh, particularly fond of. She was an excellent teacher, probably my favorite high school teacher I ever had. Uh, And so near this time of year, sort of the end of the school year, the tests were done, things were wrapping up, and so we were sort of not working on anything big, but she was giving us some shorter essays, some short stories to read. And so she assigned us a story one day written by uh, an Irish guy, and she, she said, Justin, I think that you're going to love this essay. You're going to love this story. It's going to be great. So I was very excited because she knew me, she knew which books I liked, and she told me, I was going to love this essay that she had assigned by this Irish guy. So I go home, and I read this essay, and I am shocked and appalled that she would tell me that I should like this essay. You see, this essay was written during the potato blight, the, the famine that hit Ireland, and the essay said the best plan to combat hunger in Ireland is cannibalism. We should have the the poor people raise their children and sell them to the rich people to solve the hunger problem in Ireland. And I got to the end of this essay, and I was, how, how could you think that I was going to like this essay? And I went into class the next day, and I was, I was livid. I was hot. How could you say that I would like this? It's, a, it's literally about cannibalism. She said, Justin, it's satire. And it's written by a Presbyterian. Wait, what? And I immediately stopped what I was doing, pulled the essay out, and started reading it again, going, oh, oh, yeah, no, now I see the satire in this. Oh my, the name of the the essay is A Modest Proposal, and it's by a Presbyterian minister named Jonathan Swift. But I completely misread it. I completely didn't understand what's going on. It's, It's said to be the first written piece of satire in the history of the English language. And I just didn't get it. I completely missed the point. That happens to us a lot, especially when we're reading. When we're reading the Old Testament, we can go through and and read it and absolutely miss the entire point. This morning, we're going to talk about a story that, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you were raised in the church or not, sort of no matter what your experience with religion is, you are probably at least familiar with this story in its outline. We're going to talk about the story of David and Goliath. This is a story that... Whether or not you're a Christian, you know the basic story, right? Little guy defeats the big guy. Happiness ensues. And our trouble is, is that we have a tendency to read the Old Testament and turn them into moral tales. Right? Turn them into Aesop's fable. Right? You you know Aesop's fable, right? The the tortoise and the hare. Things like that. We we tend to want these stories that end with this little punchline, right? Right? And that's why slow and steady wins the race. 
And that's why you always leave a note. And that's why, and you fill in the blank with these sort of, these sort of, these tags at the end of the story. And we read David and Goliath and we say, yes, and that's why God wants you to be strong and go conquer your giants. Go do it. Go fight the big things in your life, guys. You can, David did it, just be a David. Go on. Go get them. Yay, team. Jesus, maybe, yeah. And and when we do that, when we read especially David and Goliath, and we read it as a moral t- tale telling us to go fight our giants, it is absolutely an adventure in missing the point. It is me reading a satirical essay as if it were serious. You see, one of the problems that we have is that the Bible is not primarily about you. The Bible and our lives are not primarily about you. But what you and I do all the time is we try to turn anything we can into being about us, about people we know. Ah, yes, I'm a David. Let's, I'm going to go slay the giants. And maybe if we're real Christian, for Jesus. And when we do that, we take away from what the Bible is actually about. The Bible is actually about God and His glory. Not about us. It's about Him. And so we're going to read this story again. I'm going to read um, sort of a, a chunk of uh, 1 Samuel 17. Normally, uh, we'd read the whole thing, but it's really long. Um, for the story that most of us can summarize in two sentences, or maybe even one, little guy beats the big guy, it's, it's pretty long. So I'm going to read uh, the first 11 verses, uh, and then verses 24 through 51. That's what's going to be up here. That's what I'm going to read. And so I'd ask that you would stand um, as we read this portion of God's Word together. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Succah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succah and Azekah in Ephesus Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountains on on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had, a, he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And Saul and all Israel heard the words of the Philistine. They were dismayed, 
greatly afraid. All of the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and will make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and spoke the same way. And the people answered him as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. He sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he defies the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. He tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward came near to David, with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come with me. At, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of Hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
And David put his hand in his bag, and he took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. You see, at the end of the day, this story of David and Goliath is not just a story of how you should go conquer the hard things in your life. That you should defeat the big stuff that you have going on in your life. At the end of the day, what the story of David and Goliath teaches us is that we as Christians live most of our lives in a state of functional unbelief. That I live my life in a state of functional unbelief. And that we trust in our own power and in the things that we can see and the things that we know. See, the story sets up pretty simple. The people of Israel and the Philistines, who are the bad guys in the story, are camped out on two mountaintops on the sides of the valley. And there is this Goliath of a man who comes down and starts taunting and shouting to people and basically saying, look, if anybody can beat me, we don't have to do this whole war thing. Beat me, and we're your servant. And by the way, I'll win because your God is lousy. And the people of Israel were terrified. The, the, the language of this story is that they, they kept retreating into their tents, that they felt small whenever they looked at Goliath, and they ran away. And so then David shows up. David shows up basically as a courier. He's there to bring charcuterie to his brothers. Literally, they sent him with with cheese and a little bit of meat and some bread. I mean, David was Uber Eats for soldiers. And so David gets there, and he starts looking around saying, what's everybody hiding for? Why is everybody around here hiding? And they said, "Um, wait till 9 o'clock, and you'll see why everybody's hiding. Sure enough, like clockwork, Goliath comes out and is taunting. And David begins to ask questions around camp and says, But nobody's going to fight him? And everybody kind of looks at David sideways and says, I know glasses haven't been invented yet, but do you need some? Do you see how big he is? And David says, Yeah, but, but we've got God on our side. I think we'll be okay. And the first person that hears David say this is his brother. And brothers do what brothers do. At least so I've been told, so I've observed with my kids. His older brother says, shut up. Go home. What are you doing? What are you talking about? And David responds, like little brothers do, what what am I not even allowed to say a word now? I I can't even, it was, literally the text says, it was just a word. I said one word. You're going to yell at me for saying one word. I mean, it's, it's one of those moments where you read the Bible and you kind of go, yeah, this, this has the ring of truth simply because this is exactly how brothers and sisters operate. Right? 
And David says, no, God is with us. Let's go do this. And so he goes to Saul, and Saul says, yeah, okay, you want to fight him? Sounds good to me. Here, put on my armor. Now, we know that Saul was a huge guy as well, that he stood uh, taller than, a head taller than anyone else in Israel. And, And David is a smallish guy, and not only that, he's fairly young. So he is not a big dude. So the imagery of the Bible is that he puts on Saul's armor and that he can't even walk around in it. That it's, that it's too big. It's like when your kids put on your shoes and try to clomp around the house and be cute. This is the picture that we get of little David putting on this armor and going, no, this isn't going to work. But what's interesting as we read through this is we read about the people of Israel cowering in their tents. About David's older brother telling him to shut up and go home. When we read this about Saul trying to put David into his armor, we're supposed to see something about them. See, they could not imagine a scenario where anyone in Israel could beat Goliath. They had no concept of an idea because they looked And they saw this hulking man taunting them. They looked back around and said, we don't have a hulking man. We're as good as dead. And even their solutions, what do they say? David's brother says, you're a little boy. You're a little shepherd. Where are your sheep now, David? Saul hands him his armor and says, well, if you're going to go attack him, you need the best technology, because what, is, what does Goliath have? He has, he has iron shields, and he has bronze spears, and one's like a weaver's beam. He's got the best tech. And you're smaller than him. And so as they read this, we see that their problem is they have no imagination for what God can They have no imagination for what God can do in this scenario because they're only looking at the situation with what they can see with their two eyes. It's easy for us to look at that and say, yeah, yeah, they've got no imagination. Be more imaginative, guys. But let's be honest. How often do you and I view our lives through the same set of lenses. How often do you and I look at the problems that we have in our life? Our careers, our money, our relationships. How often do we look at those things and we only evaluate them based on what we can see? I think that more often than not, you and I live in a world where God functionally doesn't exist to us. Whether you're a Christian. In fact, if you're a Christian, you would give lip service to, yes, I believe in God. But how often does the question of God enter into your career? If ever. How often does the question of God enter into the way that you think about your money. If ever. 
You see, I am just as guilty of this as a pastor. When I look around and see our church and say, you know what, we're getting, we're getting full in this building. We, we need to begin looking for our next place. More often than not, my response to that scenario of what are we going to do next as a church, where are we going to go next for a place, is not to say, you know what I ought to do? I ought to pray about this. No, no, no. My response is to hustle. Send more emails. Talk to more people. Expand my network. Figure out another way to skin the cat. Why? Because I trust my hustle. Because it's all I can imagine is going to help. I can't imagine a scenario where God answers prayer. And yet we look at this story, and that's exactly what we're seeing. That David's imagination is bigger. That David's idea of God is bigger than all of these people. I mean, think about what David comes at him with. He has the best tech. The, the, the Bible goes, is tripping all over itself, talking about his armor, and his swords, and his spears, and his javelins. And it says David has a stick and a sling. Bad tech. Bad weapons. And yet David is confident because he has a different kind of imagination. When Saul begins to question him like, hey, uh, little guy, uh, what are you going to do? David's response was, look, I've been taking care of my sheep and lions and bears have come at me and God has defeated the lions and the bears. If God has done this before, why isn't God going to do this now? That doesn't that, that just makes sense. See, David had a trust in what God had done in the past and what God will do in the future. You notice that even when Saul offered David his sword, he didn't say, yeah, armor's a little big, I'll take the sword. No, he kept his sling. The thing that he knew, and he trusted that God would do things. David's imagination was, God is going to work in the way that God it's going to work, and he's do some, going to do something that I can't imagine. You see, even those of us who are Christians struggle with this idea of imagination and imagining what God can do in our lives. Because our solution to problems is often just to add the word Jesus to the same solutions that our friends who are not Christians have. You know what? What would help our family out right now? You know what would help our family out right now? Another $5,000. Maybe that's what one of your friends would say. Your friend at the office. You know, if I could just get that next raise, if I could just get that next sort of promotion, my family would be fixed and things would be fine. Now, what do we do as Christians? We just add a little bit of Jesus to that and say, if Jesus would just give me a raise, and if Jesus would just give me a promotion, we just sort of sprinkle Jesus on top of the same decisions that everyone else around us is making. It is if Jesus is salt or smoked paprika, something you just add a little bit onto the top when you're done making the dish. We just add some Jesus to the same set of solutions. See, David didn't take the sword of Saul and say, I'm going to do this in the name of God. He had an entirely different set of tools an entirely different
different idea. We as Christians can't start asking God and saying, God, there's Goliaths around. Would you give me a Goliath too? Because so often, if we look at our prayers, we're saying, God, look, I've served you. Give me a solution that looks just like the solutions of people around me. Whether that's a raise. Whether that's a relationship that we've been dying for. Whether that's to be reconciled to someone who we've struggled with. Whether that's a career path change. Whatever it is, we have the same set of solutions more often than not than our friends. We want God to fix our problems our way, not His way. We want to look around the camp and hope that a Goliath shows up to fight for us. But God doesn't work that way. God works His way. It's interesting as you read this story and begin to look at the symbolism that is laced throughout it. I think one of the things that's first fascinating to me is that what was Goliath's chief crime? What had Goliath done wrong? He was blaspheming God. He was standing in the promised land, blaspheming against God. You're going to guess this when I say it, but you've probably not thought of it. In the Old Testament, what was the punishment for blasphemy? Death by stoning. Hmm. Hmm. Well, isn't that interesting? You know, it's what's so striking about that is it points us to God's holiness. God is absolutely holy, and He will not allow sin to continue. He wouldn't allow the sin of blasphemy that Goliath was doing to continue. But here's the thing. It wasn't just about Goliath. Because when we try to approach our problems in the same way that the world approaches problems, even when we try to sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it, guess what we're doing? The same thing as Goliath. When we ignore the way that God has chosen to work, and just ask him to work on our terms. Just ask him to do things that we can see with our eyes. We have the same thing in our heart as the people of Israel, as Saul. You see, again, I keep telling you this, you want to identify with David, but you're not. You are the people of Israel cowering in their tents, hoping for somebody else to rescue you fix your problem. Well, good news. There is somebody else. Because there's another piece of symbolism in this story that is beautiful. When, when the Bible is tripping over itself to describe Goliath and his armor and his weapons, it uses a phrase that is only found here in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's all sorts of armor that's described. There's, there's plate mail and chain mail and everything you can imagine that the ancient Near East has to offer. But Goliath's armor was unique among anyone else in the Bible. And the best way to put it is, Goliath's armor was made of scales. Because Goliath was a snake. And it is, the writer of this story is bringing in this imagery that is woven into the entire Old Testament. The very first time 
that mankind sins, they are tempted by a snake. And when God promises to rescue his people, he says that one day, there is a day coming when one of my people, when my son, will rescue you. And the way that he will do it is by crushing the head of the snake. You see, when we read this story of David and Goliath, what we're seeing is someone standing in our place, standing in the place of God's people, fighting their battle for them and killing the snake. We're seeing a picture of the cross of Jesus. Where Jesus takes the punishment that you and I deserve for our unbelief, for our heart's quiet blasphemy, for the ways that we trust our hustle, our intelligence, and our any other way that we put ourselves up and do things that we can see with our eyes. We trust in that, and Jesus takes the sin, the guilt, on himself. He takes the punishment we deserve by killing the snake for us. And so what happens is, when we begin to see ourselves as those who need their belief fixed. I, I, my favorite prayer in the entire Bible is the prayer in one of the Gospels where, where Jesus has a man come to him and, and the man says, heal my child. Please, heal my child. And Jesus says, believe and it will be done. And the man says, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. That is the state of most of us who are Christians. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Help me to live my life, not by the things I can see, not by hustle, not by the world's way of thinking, not by the way of thinking that everybody else has around me, but a new way. And we begin to trust in Jesus to do that, that he has already defeated death for us, that he has already taken this out for us. What begins to change in your heart and mind is we start to realize that I don't need $5,000 more. I need a more peaceful heart. I don't need another relationship. I need to show true love to those who are around me. I don't need a better career. I need joy that rests not on my situation, but on something else. You see, what God gives us is not another Goliath. God gives us Jesus who dies for us and calls us to live a new life that is characterized not by our hustle, not by our accolades, not by our finances, but by things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness. You see, what God wants to transform in our heart is to stop looking to solve things the same way as everybody else and to start seeing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes from again and again trusting that I'm not David. But I need Jesus to be the one who saves me. May he do that in my heart. Let's pray.